Casey, congratulations on the Christmas sweater. That's phenomenal. Shalalalama. Shalalala. Yeah, that's, yeah. I tried. <laughs> Nothing like beginning the sermon with a bit of awkwardness. Yeah, you guys look good. David, welcome home. Yeah. Back from, what, you were in the UK for a year? Longer? Two years. My time flies. It's good to see you. You guys look great this morning. Can I just say that as well? Cheery. Um, not super great outside, but it's, you guys look great in here. And I know what you're wondering. Has Simon been cutting his own hair? Yes. Yes, I have. It started around, oh, I don't know, March. And um, yeah, I've been experimenting with some different techniques. I got that. Don't, don't lie, Matt. <laughs> don't, don't, don't mock me with the... <laughs> You're probably being serious. So I appreciate that. Um, I have no idea what it looks like from uh, the rear. I think I've got, there's something weird going on back here. But um, yeah, anyways, if you guys don't care, you're like, what? Do you just stop being weird? Let's get on with it. Let's go to Matthew chapter nine. We're gonna finish our series that we've been in for the last six weeks, simply entitled, Jesus is Lord. Arguably the most ancient of all of the Christian creeds, so much packed into this very short, succinct statement. Jesus is Lord. So much that we could say about it. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna conclude our series this morning and then we'll transition into Christmas next week. Matthew chapter nine. We're gonna jump right into an action packed segment in the life of, in the ministry of Jesus. Um, in just this one chapter, Jesus is just moving all over the place. He's, he's healing, he's teaching, he's, 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 he's bringing new life. He's doing all of these things. And by the end of a single chapter, it's very easy to imagine why people in the first century began worshiping this man. There's something extraordinarily different. This is truly deity in flesh, God with us and we can catch a glimpse of that reality in this chapter. I love it so much. It begins with um, one of the more well-known uh, instances of when Jesus healed. Um, the other gospels tell the same story. Luke, in fact, includes a bit more detail. Beginning in Matthew chapter 9 is the story of the paralytic, the, the man who wasn't able to walk. He was paralyzed from the waist down. And so some of his friends bring him to Jesus on his mat. Luke tells us that they actually tore a roof, a hole in the roof of the house where Jesus was because the crowd was too compressed and they lowered this man down before Jesus. And he looked at the man who was obviously paralyzed and instead of simply healing him, he said, your sins are forgiven. And of course, those who were looking on were appalled because they thought to themselves, who is this man who has the audacity to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And of course, Jesus, I believe, knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. And then he does heal the man. And the guy gets up, picks up his mat, and goes home. 
Right after that, he ends up calling uh, one of his disciples, a tax collector known as Matthew. Matthew, of course, would have been considered like a pariah in his own society, a Jewish trader, a man who had decided to basically sell out and collaborate with the occupying uh, enemy, the Romans who had come and taken over their town. And Matthew is now taking taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. He would have been hated, hated, like worse than sinners, a tax collector. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, Matthew, come and follow me. I don't hate you. I love you. I've come to give my life for you. Come, be a part of what I'm doing. And then next, he throws a party. Where? In Matthew's house. The guy who was once the pariah is now the party guy. The guy whose, whose house everyone is at to hang out with Jesus. And of course, it's full of other tax collectors and sinners and people whose society had written off. And they're all around Jesus. Next, Jesus is questioned about fasting. Some of the disciples of John the Baptist finally pin down Jesus and they have a bit of a Q&A session. And we see some of Jesus' teaching highlighted in this sort of in-between moment. From there, we see Jesus walking through the village and we're told that uh, a man comes and finds Jesus to say, my 12-year-old daughter has just died. I believe you can raise her back to life. Will you come now? And so Jesus says, go, your daughter will be fine. We're told later that he, he did in fact go to the house. Everyone who was looking on, the crowd who was waiting to see what Jesus would do began to mock him when he said the girl will live again. And on his way, a woman who had been suffering from some sort of, we're just told it's a, an issue of blood. I think the, uh, the implication is it was a woman who would have been, been basically menstruating nonstop for like 12 years, which in that ancient society would have been as bad as being a tax collector. She would have been considered to be a dirty person, un subhuman, unclean. And Jesus meets her on his way to raise the little dead girl back to life. And he heals this woman, restores her humanity. He loves the woman that society had called dirty and written off. Next, Jesus heals two blind men. After that, Jesus encounters a man who can't talk. We're told that he's demon-possessed. So far, it's just been someone who was paralyzed, someone who was dead, someone who had an issue of blood, someone who couldn't see. And now we're actually seeing Jesus confronting the demonic. And he recognizes the cause of this particular situation. He commands the demon to leave. And of course, the demon has but no choice because he understands the authority that Jesus um, brings to the situation. So all of this is happening. I mean, just imagine, this is like just a day in the life of Jesus. And the disciples, of course, are trying to keep up, watching him, listening to him, seeing the way he's like doing his Jesus thing. And then this happens. This is chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And this is where I want us to zoom in for the morning. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had 
compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest, it's plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's, let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest um, to send out workers. Now, the world we, we live in is still full of hurting people, people who society have written off as uh, in, are unvaluable, people who are suffering from physical uh, ailments, people who are suffering in loneliness. I suspect people like Matthew, the tax collector, who sounds like he didn't have many friends. It's not real friends. And yet, Lord Jesus, when you saw the crowd, you had compassion. And you told us to pray that more workers would, would be engaged in, in these people's lives and in, in the world and the work that you've begun. So, Lord, won't you send out more workers, more laborers. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. This is where we're going to land this morning. I want to talk about the work that Jesus is doing and how he wants to involve us. What did you want to be when you grew up? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to know what I wanted to be when I grew up? Well, a few things. It started out as, uh, I think, every little boy's uh, dream to be basically James Bond. I don't know if I quite knew of James Bond, like, way back in the day. But somehow I got it in my mind that that would be, like, the coolest thing ever. Somehow I could become a secret agent, travel the world, and assassinate people. That would be awesome. <laughs> Eventually I got it in my mind that what would be cooler than that would be to carry a briefcase, wear a suit, and sit in a cubicle. I had an uncle who essentially did that, and I sort of worshipped him for a minute during my childhood, and I thought that would be even cooler. There's something about my uncle that just exudes cool and somehow involves carrying a briefcase. I thought that was just the coolest thing. Does anyone even carry briefcases anymore these days? No, No one's into that. It'll come back, trust me. At some point, I decided, now forget all of that, I just want to... I want to live in a cave. You ever go through that phase? Yeah, I got Andrew's nodding. Yeah, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm feeling you. The, 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 the hermit that lives in the cave. Something about living in a cave. Like that just seems really, really significant and meaningful. And, and I outgrew that. Um, then I wanted to become a rock star. Like for real. I wanted to be a rock star. I was playing bass guitar. started playing when I was like, what, 15, 16 years old. And that was it. I was hooked. I was obsessed. started playing in garages. My very first gig as a 16-year-old punk rock bassist was in the parking lot at Burger King in my hometown. So punk rock. So punk rock. 
We got paid in Burger King coupons. It was epic. It was, it was a benefit show, obviously. Um, and eventually I grew out of that, and I realized that it's kind of cool to make money and, you know, stuff like that. And, and you begin to sort of, like, grow up. But everyone, I think, wants to a dream of doing something with their life that's actually going to feel, like, meaningful, significant, maybe even a little exciting. And one of the coolest things about the life that Jesus offers us is not that he just saves us from our sins. He doesn't just die so that we can be forgiven, although he did and he does, and that's incredible. And I wouldn't want to take away from or marginalize that in any way, but that's not all. Jesus, he rescues us from our sins. He gives us new hearts. He begins to transform us from the inside, and then... He invites us to participate in the work that he is doing in other people's lives. He doesn't just welcome us home and say, okay, here's your bed, here's your stuff, and enjoy having a warm place to lie, but don't touch my stuff. I don't know if you ever had... uh, that older sibling or maybe that father or, or, or the, you know, that person who's like, look, you can live in my house, but don't you dare touch my stuff. I was that older brother. Still, still trying to make amends with my little brother. Jesus welcomes us home and he says, I want to include you. I'm inviting you to participate in this mission that I've started. Tells the disciples who are following him. They're watching the work that he's doing. And Jesus pauses at some point. He looks at the crowd. He sees the need. And it's like obviously overwhelming. He's just in this little Galilean village. He's nowhere. And yet the need is overwhelming. He's just spent the whole afternoon healing and healing. And he raised a little girl from the dead. And he restored life and dignity. And he cast out a demon. And he finally looks up and he says, this is insane. Guys, we need to pray. I need you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would release more labors. And then he looks around and he says, yeah, you'll do. You ever pray that prayer? Lord, do something big. Do a miracle. Do whatever it takes. Change the world. And then you open your eyes and it's just, it's Jesus says, okay, cool. Let's do that. Yeah, you. Why don't you use someone? You're praying, you're thinking about it. Let's get it done. And this is what Jesus does. He includes us in the work that he's doing. He wants to include you. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about um, this idea of living a life of significance at the moment? Particularly in like the wake of this year. It's, it's been a bit of a, I don't know, this year's kind of been a bit of a drag, to put it lightly. God's done some amazing things. This building, we bought this building, remember that? Somehow this happened. It's kind of cool. I love coming to this place. I love having a place to gather, a place to invite friends, a place just to be together and enjoy one another. But a 
a large portion of this year has felt a bit insignificant. Like, man, we're just, it's just, we're on hold. We're, it's like the whole world has just hit pause. And it's not like we can't actually go out and do stuff. I mean, no one's stopping us from like, I don't know, engaging with the world. I mean, we have to wear masks and we need to kind of distance ourselves a bit. But there is this general sense of like, man, this just feels like we're, we're just, it's just drudgery. It's hard. It's difficult. Now we're towards the end. And I, I have felt it. Like, man, God, I want to get back in on the action. I'm tired of just being at home. I'm tired of feeling like we're just on hold. Jesus, what do you want to do? Last time I checked, the world was still, still full of people who need what you've got, who need you. Can, can, we, can we get back to work? And more and more I felt like the Spirit of Christ reminding me that the harvest is plentiful. And yes, I want to include you. I would love for you to participate in the work that I'm, I'm doing. And it fulfills that need that we have to live a life of significance. Better than being an international assassin. Better than being a rock star. Better than living in a cave. Jesus invites us. To do really significant work. What is, what is this work? What does it mean to be recruited by Jesus as a worker in the harvest field? That's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what I feel like um, Jesus wants to talk about with us. What is, what is this mission? What is Jesus' vision when we start talking about the harvest. Um, I mean, what, what sort of images does that conjure for you? What sort of feelings do you have? Do you, do you get panicky? Do you feel anxious? Do you think, oh, goodness, he's going to make me feel guilty for not evangelizing more. He's going he's gonna to tell me I need to go out and like pr make pros you know, proselytize or whatever weird, nasty word you might want to connect with the idea. Does it excite you? Have you been longing for someone to invite you into something, something that feels significant, something that's going to require that you would like stop being so lazy and self-centered and be challenged to actually give what you've got for the sake of others? Something that feels a bit more eternal, something that's somehow connected with heaven's kingdom and not simply reduced down to just staying warm and fed? Those are pretty important things, things not to be taken for granted. How do you feel? What, what is the mission? To be a laborer in the harvest field is definitely more than going out into the world and engaging in the war of competing ideologies. This idea that what, what Jesus really wants us to do is to go out in the world or to go online and just start winning arguments. Start engaging in these sort of ideological uh, cat fights that are happening around us all the time. People trying to, to one up the other to say, I'm smarter, I've read more books or check out my YouTube or whatever. And, and that's... that's constantly going on around us. And although I do believe in engaging in in argument, in debate, and discussion, I think content is significant, truth matters. 
Yet what we see Jesus doing in Matthew 9 and then ultimately even inviting us into, it's not just that. It's more than just an exchange of competing ideologies. It's more than just argumentation. It looks something more like an invitation. Jesus saying, I'm calling you to join me. Now I want you to go and invite others. Invite others to come and see, to taste, to experience, to belong. To be a part of what I'm doing, my family, my kingdom that I'm getting ready to inaugurate. It's more than just competing ideas. And it's definitely more than just an awkward MLM. Have you ever been recruited into a multi-level marketing scheme? You know what I'm talking about? I kind of feel like everyone at some point in your life like almost gets drawn into an MLM. And if you never have, like, you've got to try it at least once. <laughs> I remember I was, I was just brand new Christian, and my buddy Jordan, he, he had gotten into this. Uh, I think he was, like, selling vacation packages or something. And he pitched the whole thing to me, and he said, dude, look, you can get in on this, and, and, and you can make, like, a ton of money, and, and then you can get some other people. And he was describing to me a classic pyramid scheme. But I had never, I'd never been exposed. I'd never been recruited into a pyramid scheme. And so I went to tell my parents, look, you've got to like buy these vacation packages and you can make money too. And God bless my mom, but she kind of just looked at me with a bit of compassion in her eyes. She's like, oh, honey, like this is, um, this is a bad idea. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. And I proceeded to explain to her, like it's not... No, 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 you think it's a pyramid scheme. It's not a pyramid scheme. This is how it works. There's one person up here, and then they have other people that are like, and as I described it to them, I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> it's not that. This is not Jesus's MLM. It's not his pyramid scheme. It's not I'm recruiting you so that I can use you to go recruit others. This is a family affair. This is... When you've met the one who's told you everything about yourself and offers you new life. A chance to start over. A life packed full of significance, meaning hearts overflowing with the love of God. It's the kind of gift that one is simply compelled to share with others. And then Jesus simply comes along and he says, yeah, let's do that. Let's begin to share with the world this good gift, the good news that my kingdom is finally coming. It's near. It's breaking out. It's an invitation. It's also a diverse and holistic mission that centers around Jesus. It's much more than just a single thing. It's much more than just going out into the streets with your megaphone. It's much more than just serving silently behind the scenes, making sure that people get fed. It's much more than just preaching behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning. It's much more than just one single thing that you may have thought it was. What Jesus is doing is sort of like touching all bases. He's covering every aspect of life. 
In fact, he goes on in uh, Matthew 10, starting in verse 7, he says to his disciples, now I'm sending you, and as you go, proclaim to everyone around you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, now give without pay. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. He's, he's talking about a whole variety of different broken aspects of life. Healing the sick, well, that could look like a lot of different things. It could be one of those supernatural situations where you like lay hands on someone and say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Have you ever tried that? You're talking about an awkward moment. I've tried that several times. It hasn't worked yet. I've seen little glimpses of it. Kind of like, maybe that was it. I think it was it. Maybe we should keep praying. God only knows, but I'm definitely going to keep trying. But then there's also like the healing of, man, I believe God has gifted, excuse me, doctors. People who have invented medicine and vaccines. and, And God's actually given people incredible talents they're like healers gifted by God to see people be healed and then of course there's mental health people like the healing they need it's not some physical thing they're suffering from it could be loneliness we all have heard the, the the stories I mean one of the worst things about this year is the reports of of just depression and suicide and these these things to do with loneliness and a sense of despair and like insignificance that's just off the charts. People have lost hope, any sense of meaning in life. They need to be healed. And that can happen in an entirely different way. Sometimes when, uh, when you know, we talk about our little food pantry that we started downstairs, I'm here most of the week. And I'm interacting with people who just wander in this little building. It's one of the great benefits. I've said it before, but having a church building that looks like a church from the outside. And so, you know, if someone's down on their luck, they're struggling, they're hungry, they're cold. They'll wander in this building. The door is hardly ever locked. It's actually kind of annoying. Um, but I'm pretty sure Jesus wants the door unlocked so people wander in off the street. And I'm like, hey, what do you need? They usually want money. But as I said before, it's probably not a good idea um sometimes maybe but i say dude are you hungry are you cold what's your story talk to me and i usually pray for them and invite them back here i'm like come be be a part of our community you need friends you need you need to be around some people who value you because you're a human being you're not just a problem to be solved come be a part of this this little family that we're we're building that Jesus is building. That's healing in the name of Jesus. That can be radical healing for someone who would rather just, I don't know, stop living. Raise the dead. Have you ever tried that one? That's not even funny. My granddad died last week. I've thought about now what would I have the courage in that moment to pray? For someone who I love to come back to life. That's a risky move right there. I would try it. I would try it just because Jesus said to do it. And I believe it does happen. It does happen. 
I think there's other ways to see dead things come back to life as well. All of these different categories, I, I think, speak to the, to the diversity of the mission. It could be a relationship that's dead, cold, blue, lifeless. It could be a marriage that's lost all vital signs. It could be a community. It could be, there's a lot of things and a lot of ways that things die in life. And Jesus would say, I'm sending you to raise dead things back to life. Later on in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Christ through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. When God's people disperse, we go back into our workplaces and the community and all you know, the different things that we, we get up to in life. The picture is wherever we go, where there's a dead thing rotting, the one who has Christ in them begins to spread the, the, the fragrant aroma of new life in that place. Wherever we go, Jesus is present if we belong to him, if he's living in us. And on and on. We restore the outcast. He says, cleanse lepers. Lepers would have been the outcasts, the untouchables, the subhumans in that society. And what did Jesus do with lepers? He got close to them. He put his hands on them and he says, I declare that you are clean. And they were healed. They were healed. I also believe in healing. Like supernatural healing, as I said. I think like laying on hands on someone with a skin disease and asking God to heal them supernaturally. I think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. I simply want to make the point that the implications are even greater than that. Some people, they don't have a skin condition. Their condition is like they have a, I don't know, maybe theirs is a, a uh, maybe they're socially awkward. Maybe they don't know how to relate with people. Maybe they don't know how to make friends. And everywhere they go, they feel like I'm a social leper. I try to go to church. I'm told that people are supposed to love me and accept me there because they have to, because they're Christians. And even there, I feel like I don't belong. I feel like a leper. And the people of God would go and say, no, you're not. Come here, let me give you a hug. Come here, come over to my house, spend Christmas with me. Let me introduce you to my kids. Let's share a meal together. In Jesus' name, you are not an outcast. You are not a reject. You do belong. I don't care what you've been told out there. Jesus is doing something different. His kingdom is touching down. And we go and we do this stuff. It's diverse. It's holistic. This, this is the work that Jesus is inviting us to. How do you feel about that? Do you feel motivated to be a part of that? Okay, so I've described the what. This is the mission of God. This is what Jesus was up to and is inviting us to participate in. Now here's the big question. Do you want in on that? You're like, I'm happy that you're excited about it. I guess that's why we pay you. But I, I'm cool over here. I don't know if anyone would actually say that out loud, but how do you really feel like in your heart? Better yet, when you go out there and you look at the crowds, the proverbial crowds of Portland, how do you feel in your heart? Do you feel overwhelmed with compassion 
for all of these wonderful people. <laughs> you know, just down the street earlier this week, um, my brother Nathan came here. He's like, hey, do you know what's going on down on Mississippi? There's like, uh, like SWAT cars and, and people like in militia gear. And it looks like they've kind of taken over like the city block or something. And um, <laughs> you know what I said to him? You remember what I said, Nathan? Remember the word that came out of my mouth? Yeah, so he's described. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew like something was going down. Some people basically like were like trying to basically take on the cops and take over the city block. And he was describing this to me and I just said, idiots. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt in my heart. And then Nathan rightly corrected me and he said, hmm, you know, those idiots, uh, God probably wants to reach them and bring them into our church or something like that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, what I said after that, I'm like, yeah, and there's a lot of idiots in our church. <laughs> it's hard. When I see the crowd, I, compassion is not always my default emotion. Sometimes, like, man, I would just, this crowd annoys me. This crowd is is destroying things this crowd is making or whatever however you might feel about it you might be like yeah good, good for them you know I'm like I'll I'm gonna join them I honestly like we all know like the the emotional response varies radically and I'm not trying to like say well you know you should feel one way or another I mean I think these things are often very complex and to be honest with you I don't even know the details of the situation at least I didn't in the moment but my gut reaction was like one of annoyance Our motivation must be primarily one of compassion. When we look at the crowds, we consider all that's wrong with the world. We can get annoyed about it. We can rage against it. Or I think what often most of us do, or at least I, I'm often tended to do, I'll make my little comment and then I'll withdraw. I'll just disengage and be like, oh, you guys do your crowd thing. I'm going to go over here and do my thing. That's not compassion. It's not compassion. Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion. How do you feel? There's another motivation. And this one's, <laughs> this one's great. Jesus... We're told in John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 4 that Jesus was traveling through the countryside in Samaria. This would have been like northern Israel. And uh, he met a woman at the well, a Samarian woman, who would have been considered like one of these unclean people. Like don't talk to the Samaritan at the well. And what does Jesus do? He talks to her. He engages with her. He begins to like tell her her life story. And they have this incredible moment she essentially experiences healing, restoration, restored dignity, and then leaves to go tell the whole village about this man that she had met. She does exactly what Jesus is instructing his disciples to do now. Like, go tell the world. Only she doesn't even have to be told. She's just like, look, I got, I got to share this with someone. She goes. The disciples return because they had gone to go get some food for Rabbi Jesus. Apparently they hadn't eaten all day or whatever. And they come back with the food and Jesus is like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I just had this incredible meal. And he says, my food is to do the work 
of him who sent me to do the work of my father. You have no idea how deeply satisfying it is to engage with the work that God is doing in the world. It is exciting. It is fulfilling. It, it meets that deep, deep desire, the need that each one of us has to live a life of significance. Like we crave it, we long for it, we don't feel alive unless we can say, I'm actually doing what I was given life to do in the first place. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we were saved, rescued by Jesus, forgiven, restored, not by works, not because of something that I can do to somehow manipulate God into loving me and forgiving me, not by works, but I'm saved for works. It is the purpose for which I have been saved, as we say, to participate in the work that God has prepared for me. And when I do, it's better than the best Thanksgiving meal. Ooh, I had some good ham at the Callaway's last night. Ooh, I have some in the refrigerator as well. Thank you, Shirley, for taking ham home. But it's nothing compared to getting in the game. And it, you could kind of think of it as like, well, isn't that a bit selfish? Like you're just gaining fulfillment? Yeah, that's just it. It's what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. This idea that the best, most fulfilling life, like if you want to experience, quote unquote, like fulfillment, your best life, then die to yourself and just pour your life into the work that God is doing. That's where the action's at. That's where the satisfaction that you're looking for is found. And so I would say, let that be a motivation as well. If you're feeling a bit bored with life, get to work. Figure out what Jesus has planned for you and throw yourself into it. Get involved. It's exciting. Those are the whys. Why don't we do this? What are the obstacles? Why does it oftentimes, when you, when you leave here, obviously I can get up here and, and like do my best to say something inspirational. Or For most of you, you already know all of this. You've heard this sermon before. And really this hopefully is just kind of a reminder. Just how I intended it, to be honest with you. I'm not sure I'm not saying anything new. It's a reminder. So why is it so hard when we go out of here? Why don't we actually like jump in and like live this kind of life find ways to to do the stuff well number one it's hard like it's hard work it actually costs something salvation's free but to participate in the life that jesus has saved us for it costs us everything jesus you have to lose your life if you want to find your life that's how we begin and that's how we, we continue to experience this life that Jesus has saved us for. It costs us everything. It costs us our time, obviously. It costs us our affection. It costs us our resources, our gas money, our whatever, our extra job, our side project. It costs us our reputation. I say this is probably one of the greatest obstacles that I face, that I observe people facing in the world it's not popular to like 
be on mission with Jesus. You will get dirty looks. People will misunderstand you. People will judge you. People will assume all sorts of awful things about you. If you even claim to be a Christian, there's a great risk at being written off as a bigot. Especially if you're one of those like Bible-believing Christians. It will cost you your reputation. Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus said. He goes on to tell his disciples explicitly, oh, you're going to be hated for this. The world will hate you. And in fact, you guys will all, all end up getting killed for this. It will often feel pointless. Some of you have or are actively like, engaging in this work. You're like, man, I'm all in the mission. It's what I live for. You're, you're speaking my language. But let's be real. Some days it feels arduous. Like I'm, I'm lacking the motivation because it just feels like nothing's happening. Like this is just slow going. I mean, I've been at this for how many years now? And I'm looking around. I'm like, Jesus, like, have I missed it? Am, am, I, am I on the wrong bus? Am, am I in sin? Am I, like, do you, are, are you bored with me? Like, wh what am I doing wrong? And it can begin to feel like nothing's happening. And so naturally, motivation begins to wane. This is what I would say to you. This is what I say to myself all the time. The harvest is a farming metaphor. Jesus is talking about something that grows. He often uses the seed metaphor, the sowing and the reaping allegory. This kingdom business that Jesus has invited us to participate in, it's like planting trees. Sometimes the results might take a lifetime before we can actually see the fruit, as we say. And it does, it takes patience. It's one of the reasons why we gotta keep coming together. Be like, man, how'd your week go? How'd your month go? How was your year? How's your life been? I don't know, I've been working really, really hard. And can I be real? Can I be real? It feels like nothing's happening. Like I wanna give up every day. Can you help me? Say something to me. Talk to me. Look me in the eyes and tell me I'm, it's not true. And so we keep coming together. The writer of Hebrews says, don't stop gathering. In fact, come together so that you can encourage one another all the more as we wait for Jesus to return. We've got to keep encouraging each other. It does matter. Keep sowing. Keep watering. Keep praying. Keep working. Keep, keep at it. Keep trusting. And if you feel weak, if you're about to give up, dang it, lock arms with me. We can do this together. Let's keep going. It might feel like planting mustard seeds, but Jesus promised he's building it. He's growing it. It's going to become a tree that's for generations. It may take longer than a single lifetime, but this is a kingdom vision. This is an eternal work. It is working because Jesus is alive. And he's not a liar, and his kingdom won't be stopped. But it's hard. It is hard. Oh, there's so much more that we could say. Let me end with this. Let me end with this. How do we do this? I haven't said anything about the how. I said the what and the why, the why not. 
But like, how do we actually go about this? And I'll say that's actually a bad question because it really depends. Depends. How do you engage in the work that Jesus is, is including us in? I don't know. Who are you? What are your gifts? What do you like? What, what sort of personality did, did God give you when he created you? What city are you living in? The question of how is really more a question of who. How do we do this? Mm. <laughs> Let me know if you figure it out. I will tell you this though. The how isn't nearly as important as the who. We do this with Jesus and each other. Hannah, would you mind coming up please? We do it together with Jesus and friends. In Acts chapter 4, we uh, find Peter and John, a couple of these disciples. You can come up as well, Tatiana. We find a couple of Jesus' disciples doing exactly what he's commissioned them to do. They've just healed a man. They're on their way to the temple to worship. And there's a man sitting at the gate who hasn't walked his like, entire life. And he's asking for money. And Peter looks at him and says, I don't got anything. I have no money. I gave it all up to follow Jesus. But the one thing I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus, arise. And he's healed. He gets up and he goes home. And he starts to tell the world about it. Peter and John are the most unlikely guys to have come together on this mission experience, this journey. Eventually they find themselves before the religious authorities. And they're grilling Peter and John, asking them, how did you do this? And what do you mean you prayed in Jesus' name? What does that even mean? And they were threatened. They didn't like what they were doing. They said, so stop it. And it says in Acts chapter 4 that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. But they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus Guys, I'm excited for 2021. I'm excited to fully re-engage with the work that Jesus is doing in our city, in our lives, our families, our workplaces. All, I mean, he, he wants in on it all and he wants to include us. And I'm excited for us as a church. Guys, I feel like this whole year has just been this ridiculous, cool setup to engage in, in the harvest. I mean, you just look around, like people are dying for hope. People are like, man, I need joy, I need, I need meaning, I'm looking for something, where am I gonna find it? And Jesus would say, I got it, my kingdom's near. I am who you are looking for. And we get to be the hands and feet. We get to go out, Jesus in us. And when the world looks at us, guess what? I wish it weren't so, but guess what? When the world looks at you, they're not gonna be impressed without educated or eloquent or awesome or charismatic you are. And that's really, really good news. But if we've been spending time with Jesus, if we have hearts that are full of his love, they're going to see something else. They're going to perceive that hey, these are just regular people. They got problems. They got sin. They get insecurities, they get all these things. They look at the crowd and they say, ugh, idiot. Or they just, all this stuff going on. 
But if we've been spending time with Jesus together, they might see something else. They might realize, man, they have something and I wanna find out more. I wanna know what it, what it feels like to live in that kind of security. Where instead of lashing out at those who you don't agree with, those who threaten your uh, ideology, your opinion, whatever it might be, instead of withdrawing or attacking, you, you begin to love them. You begin to share with them the compassion that you have been freely given. You received without paying, now give without pay. That's compelling stuff. Can we stand together, please? As Hannah and Tatiana lead us in a, in a song of worship, the question that I'd like to leave us all with is, do you want in? Are you ready for a year full of action? Do you have a heart that is just full of Jesus' compassion? Maybe that's the place to start. Maybe that's the question we should be asking ourselves. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you actually know? Do any of us actually know how much Jesus loves us? What it cost him when he died for us? This just insane compassion that God has for his difficult children, that would be us. Do you know that love? He wants to, he wants to give you more of it. So that we're not going out there trying to somehow like um, muster some, you know, I don't know, manufactured sense of compassion. I don't know, it doesn't work that way. That's exhausting. Jesus wants to fill our hearts afresh. Let's worship him.